This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 171 from Monday, January 4th, 2010. Solar System Movements and Positions. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly fact-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well, Fraser. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. All right, let's get at her. So even in ancient times, astronomers realized there was something different about the planets. They move. The movement of the planets and their moons are governed by gravity, and as we all know, Gravity can do some funny things. So uh, let's kind of go back to ancient history and, and sort of get an idea of what the ancient people thought the way the universe worked. Well, originally it was all based on philosophy, looking up, imagining how the pieces fit together. And using philosophy, it was Aristotle who led the idea that all of the planets orbited on perfect circles and the stars were embedded on a perfect sphere that embraced the planet Earth. And so it was all nested circles with the Earth at the center moving outwards and outwards. And standing on the surface of the Earth, that's the natural conclusion that you would come to. You, you, know, you look up in the sky and the stars seem to be moving and so it seems like the stars are moving around you. The sun is moving, the Earth, the moon is moving, the planets are moving. And from one season to the next, you don't see the stars move relative to one another, which is what you'd kind of expect if we were in a little tiny system where the stars weren't that far away. So since the stars didn't seem to move, they just seemed to rotate around and around and around. It seemed natural. Okay, they're just embedded on a flat, well, they're embedded on the inside of a sphere that's not too big that embraces the planet Earth. Right. And... How well were astronomers able to use this this model to still, you know, do astronomy? Well, it it made some predictions, but they weren't particularly accurate. You couldn't, for instance, using simply descriptions of, well, here's the sun on a, on a circle, here's the moon on a circle, come up with a precise day and time for when an eclipse would be visible on the surface of the Earth. You couldn't accurately say this planet is going to be right next to this star at this moment in time. So we had a theory. We just didn't have a way to back it up with evidence. Right. And then along came Copernicus. Well, and along came Ptolemy as well at about the same time. Copernicus was one of the first ones to move that we should, instead of having the earth at the center, have the sun at the center. Now, this was, again, in part for philosophy and religious reasons. The sun is governed by Apollo. Copernicus worshipped Apollo. It worked. And unfortunately, his theory, while having at least the sun in the right place, it didn't do anything to really improve our ability to predict where things are located. And sadly, at about the same time, we had Ptolemy with his Earth-centered system and his epicycles that had circles on circles trying to control the planet's positions. He was able to make much more accurate, but still not completely accurate, predictions for where things would be located. Right. And so Ptolemy's got these circles within circles. Copernicus has got just circles, 
but Ptolemy's act, math actually works out better. Right, because he was able to correct for things by simply adding in extra cycles, adding in extra corrections, moving things around until everything worked out just right. He still wasn't able to make precise predictions, but he was better than Copernicus at being able to say where things would be at a given point in time. So when did the astronomy finally get accurate? Well, we finally figured out the math thanks to Kepler. And he was working about the same time as Galileo 400 years ago. And he was working with a man called Tycho Brahe, who was the observationalist behind the team. Kepler was very much a theorist. So Tycho Brahe had taken books and books and books worth of observational measurements of exactly where the planets were located. And Kepler poured through these patterns looking for ways to mathematically match what had been seen on the sky. And he tried all sorts of things, nesting circles mathematically within invisible geometric solids in the sky. And None of it worked. And after a lot of mathematical head beating, he came to the realization that it's not circles that the planets are orbiting on, but instead the ellipse. It's a slightly flattened circle in some cases. And by just making this minor change, by saying ellipses instead of circles, he was able to very accurately, with, within the ability of us to make measurements 400 years ago, he was able to finally predict where things would be located in the sky when. Right. And I guess part of the problem is, is that as a planet or some object is following an elliptical path around the around the sun, the speed that they're orbiting changes. So as they get very close to one of the the nodes of this ellipse, they're going to go very fast. Well, if they're at the very far point of it, you know, away from the sun, they're going to go a little bit slower. And so anytime you're looking at the speed of the planet moving and trying to use that to predict where it's going to be, you have to know the shape of that ellipse or it doesn't do any good. And for the planets that they were able to see back then, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, they were very close to circles with the exception of Mercury. But it was just that slight difference that kept doing them in mathematically, and he was able to overcome that slight difference. Now, the problem is, is differences between Kepler's predictions, which only used the, the sun, even though he didn't quite knew that at the time, differences between Kepler's predictions and reality slowly began to crop up. And it wasn't until Newton came along that we were finally able to start understanding the differences and where they came from, thanks to understanding gravity. Right. Apple dropping on his head, there's gravity. Right. And it turns out that you can use the exact same mathematics to understand that apple falling that you use to understand, well, the moon falling around the planet Earth. Okay. I don't want any more mail about how <laughs> how that's you know probably never really happened. So... But the, the original documents describing how Newton told the story to one of his colleagues are now posted online and we'll try and link to them. Yeah. So at least there is original documentation about right, this right. bit of saw, gossip. He saw an apple fall. Yeah, he said. So he said. But OK, please continue. <laughs> so Newton came along and he realized that it's forces that are controlling the motion that the planet Earth, it gravitationally tugs on the moon and, well, the moon tugs back and the two orbit one another. And together, our mass and the moon's mass, we orbit the sun. And our planet is tugging on the moon. We're tugging on Venus. All the different bodies are gravitationally tugging on one another. 
And some of the variances we see in planets' behavior year after year after year, they're coming up from, well, Jupiter's giving Mars a good tug here and there. Earth is giving Mars a good tug here and there. And together, we're slowly evolving its orbit, causing its orbit to change over time. In fact, all the planets' orbits are slowly changing over time. Okay, so let's then take a look at sort of big picture here. All the planets orbit the sun. Yes. Why? The the best way to imagine this is all the planets are basically racing around the gravitational equivalent of a cyclodrome where you have essentially a dimple in space time. And if you have enough velocity racing around the inside of this bowl, you're just going to keep going in a circle. Now, not all of these bowls are perfect circles. The sun's gravity essentially creates a pit in space-time. And as long as the planets keep moving, they keep staying on the wall of this hole in the continuum. Now, there's other descriptions where we mathematically start saying there's gravitons flying back and forth, and it's the gravitons that are communicating, hey, there's gravity, you need to stay where you are. But the basic idea is... The planets are trying to move in a perfectly straight line, and the gravity from the sun is going, no, come to me. And so as they try and go in a straight line, the constant yanking of the sun going, no, come to me, bends that straight line. So they move a little bit forward, they move a little bit towards the sun, they move a little bit forward, they move a little bit toward the sun. And if any of you ever used the logo computer language back in the 80s, this is how you draw a circle. You move forward, you turn. You move forward, you turn. And that's exactly how an orbit works. Right. And in this situation, the, the those forces are in perfect balance. If you made the sun more massive, then the planets would all spiral inward and be destroyed. And, <laughs> right. And if you made the sun less massive, then the, the planets would all spiral outward into space and be lost forever. If you made the planets move any slower in their orbits, they would all spiral inward and be destroyed. And if you made the planets move any faster, they would spiral outward. It's this, it's this exact perfect balance. And, and that's left over from the, the formation of the solar system way back when. And, and it's not quite that deadly. If you varied something slightly, it would just move to a stable, larger, smaller orbit. And this is happening all the time because the sun's constantly losing mass due, its to, it, due to its stellar wind. And at very minuscule levels, the, the planets are slowly migrating away from the sun. And this is good because mm-hmm. when the sun bloats itself up in a few billion years and leaves the main sequence, the Earth will have migrated to a possibly safe distance away. But yeah, slight variations in any parameter causes the orbits to change. All right. So let's let's take one planet. Just you know, let's take a look at say Mercury, for example. <laughs> Mercury, of course, is one of the completely it's one of the more, more complicated ones. But sure. Yeah. Yeah. So then, what way is it going around the sun? What direction? If if you look down on the solar system in such a way that all the planets are moving in a clockwise direction then this this is said to be looking down on the north poles of everything except for Venus, which believes on standing on its head. Right. Um, so looking down from the north at the solar system, Mercury appears to be going around and around and around in an anti-clockwise direction. But its, its orbit is fairly elliptical. Uh, if you speak eccentricities, it has an eccentricity a little over 0.2. And this means you can actually see how flattened that circle is with your eye. 
And on one side of its orbit, it's a lot closer to the sun than on the other side of its orbit. And when it's close to the sun, tidal forces, these are the same forces that cause us to always see the exact same side of the moon. Tidal forces make it not want to rotate. So during that period of time when it's closest to the sun, the sun pretty much stands still in the mercurial sky. And it's only as Mercury gets further and further away from the sun that it's able to orbit a little bit more freely. Now, luckily, it's moving really fast when it's close to the sun. It's moving really slowly when it's far away from the sun. So the rate at which it rotates on its axis actually stays completely constant. It's just relative to where it is in its orbit at that point when it's closest to the sun the sun appears to completely stand still in the sky. So then if I could stand on the surface of Mercury and watch the sun over the course of a day or a year, what would I see? Well, you'd have to do a whole lot of waiting to see very much because a day on Mercury relative to its year is a a fairly long, long thing to wait through. In fact, for... Every three times the planet experiences a day, it goes all the way around the sun twice. This is what's called a spin orbit resonance. For the longest time, astronomers actually thought that Mercury was completely tidally locked. It's really hard to try and image the surface of Mercury from here. And it wasn't until the 1960s when we started imaging Mercury using radar that was sent from big radar dishes here on the planet that we realized, oh, it it is rotating and realized over years mercury years of watching it that it has this resonance in how long it takes to rotate and how long it takes to experience a year right and this is where i think we should distinguish between solar days and sidereal days right right? i mean a solar day is how long it takes for the sun to return to the same position in the sky while a sidereal day is how long would it take if you could look above the planet and not really think about the sun how long does it take for it to to turn back to the same right spot and here on earth those are fairly similar which we'll get to in a second but mercury they're totally different. <laughs> they're, they're totally different. And this is because we do have this strange rotation rate where in order to get the sun geometrically in the same place in the sky back to exactly noon straight overhead, you have to keep going and going and going around the sun. Whereas well before you get the sun back in the same place, you've already gotten the stars back in the same place. Right. Now, Venus, let's move on out. Venus is even weirder. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's going around the sun in the same direction. All the planets are going around the sun in the same direction. They're all going in that, in that, in that counterclockwise direction, right? Right. Now, the, the problem with, with Venus is when you look at, well, where's its North Pole? Its North Pole, if you define the North Pole as where you're standing such that when you look at your feet, everything's going around in an anti-clockwise direction, its North Pole is actually opposite of everything else in the solar system. In fact, when you look down, you see all the rest of the planets. Happily, you can see... For the most part, we have another problem when we get to Uranus. You can look down and you see all of their clouds going around in the same anti-clockwise direction that they're rotating, they're orbiting around the sun. 
But with Venus, you look down and its clouds are going about in a clockwise direction as it orbits in that anti-clockwise direction about the sun. Right. So imagine, you know, look at the whole solar system from above. You're going to see all the planets all moving in the same direction. So Venus is, you know, is obeying that rule. But yet, if you actually look at the planet itself, if you could just, you know, from the position of the stars, you would see it turning slowly backwards. And of course, Venus is even more weird because a day on Venus is longer than its year. It's backwards day. It's longer <laughs> it's, than its Right. Year. Yeah. So, so Venus is even weirder. First of all, you have this upside down motion. But then when you start looking at how long it takes for the sun and the stars to get back to where they started... Well, it's year. Let's start with what its its year is. To get all the way around the sun is 224 Earth days. And to an observer standing on the surface of Venus, you have the sun rising in the west, setting in the east, and from one noon to the next noon, that's going to be 116 days. So that's most of the time that it takes you to get all the way around the sun. But because everything's going west to east, the amount of time that it takes to get the stars back in the same place, that's actually going to be longer than an entire year. So to get the stars back to where they started out at the beginning of the year takes 243 days. And this is kind of weird and kind of special to Venus. Now, I think we're, we're fairly familiar and comfortable with, with our days here on Earth, right? We've got <laughs> I hope so. The Earth, but we say, you know, like a day takes 24 hours. And I think we've mentioned, right, that that's, the, that's a solar day. So it takes 24 right. hours for the, for the sun to come back to the same place. Well, a sidereal day is shorter than that. Right. And that's to get the stars back to the exact same place they were in the sky. And that's actually the true you know, rotational speed of, of the earth. Right. When you think about it. It's just not useful for when you're trying to make plans for the future because right. it, the stars vary a little bit too much from one point in the year to the next. Mars is similar to earth, right? Just a little over 24 hours. Jupiter has a crazy fast rotation speed. Jupiter, it, it has an amazing speed of 9.9 .9 hours to get the sun back to where it started. And then Saturn, we don't know. Saturn's a bit problematic. Its its atmosphere refuses to let us understand what's going on down in the center. We're trying to understand it using magnetic fields, but I'll just leave it at we don't know. Right. We kind of approximately sort of think that it's about maybe 10 and a half hours, but... We don't know. We don't know for sure because there's many ways to to measure that. But I think, you know... The really interesting one is Uranus. Right. And this is the the planet that apparently had a very bad life in the past. It's tilted completely on its side. And there's really only two ways to get a planet to have that particular fate. One of them is you just hit it with something the size of about the planet Earth. And if I were Uranus, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to get hit with something the size of the planet Earth. And the other way is to be a victim of gravitational abuse from Saturn and Jupiter going through a weird resonance period in the early part of the, the solar system. We're not sure which one happened. It also could have been a combination of Uranus getting knocked about gravitationally by Saturn and Jupiter and getting hit by something smaller. We don't know. All we know is it's 97 degrees tilted over. 
Right, which which is essentially tilted over on its side. Right. So for all intents and purposes, its pole points at the sun when it has its winter solstice and when it has its summer solstice. Right. And and this is where you sort of got to think about it. Imagine Uranus tilted over on its side, but it's not like it's rolling around the sun. No, right. it always keeps its pole pointed at the same set of stars. Right. And then, and so sometimes that pole has to go through the sun first to get to those stars and other times that, you know, the sun is on the opposite side of the planet, but still. Now, Pluto's not a planet anymore, but it, <laughs> it used to have, you know, I guess it still has a highly eccentric orbit. Right. And the thing is, though, it, we talk about it having a highly eccentric orbit, but its eccentricity isn't mathematically all that different from Mercury's. Mercury's eccentricity is 0.206 and Pluto's is 0.248. So those are pretty similar. But the reason we notice Pluto's eccentricity is because it orbit, its orbit cuts back and forth in front of Neptune. So sometimes Pluto's closer to the sun than Neptune is and sometimes Neptune's closer to the sun than Pluto is. Right. And that difference in in distance actually has a fairly interesting effect on Pluto, which is that when it's at its closest point, it warms up to the point that it, its atmosphere pops up. Right. And then when it's further away, it, its atmosphere freezes back down onto the surface. Right. So we have a planet that sometimes has an atmosphere, sometimes doesn't. And this actually led Mario Livio to make a quote that I will forever love. And that's if you took Pluto and you brought it in close to the sun, it would turn into a comet. And that's no way for a planet to behave. Right. So what we're seeing is as Pluto gets closer to the sun, it starts to fuzz up the same way a comet does as it gets closer and closer to the sun. It's, it's exhibiting very comet-like behaviors. That's pretty funny. Right. Now, okay, so so now we've talked about sort of the planets. We talked about how they're they're rotating. Want to talk a bit then, you know, if we imagine the solar system as a flat like a record, right? And we know that right. that, that is the plane of the ecliptic. But the planets are mostly orbiting on that, but not quite, right? Right. So each of the the planets orbits is relative to the earth's a little bit tilted in one way or another exactly how much they're tilted varies. And for the most part, they aren't tilted very much. So we have for Mercury, the orbital inclination, it's the most. It has a seven degree tilt. Uh, Venus is about 3.4, but all the rest are tilted less than three degrees. So this is very slight and not the type of thing that's going to be very easy for you to get out and start measuring with your protractor. But this is why we don't see Venus pass in front of the sun all the time. All the time, right? Is that it's sometimes above the sun from our vantage point and sometimes it's below the sun. So the slight tilts that are out there do create a much less interesting observational universe. But what's neat is when we start looking out at the dwarf planets, at all the trans-Neptunian objects, they do have all sorts of different crazy tilts where we see that Pluto's tilted 17 degrees and Haimea is 28 degrees, so is Makemake, and Eris is 44 degrees tilted. We also start seeing the asteroids with tilts where Ceres has an 11-degree tilt relative to the Earth's orbit. So it's just the planets that seem to be locked into this disk where when we start looking at asteroids and comets and dwarf planets, these small mass leftover bits in the solar system, they sort of end up on much more cattywampus orbits around the sun. That, that is the first time you've used that word in this, 
in this podcast, I think. <laughs> and it's the best way to describe these objects. But still, I mean, if you're going to go and look to discover new planets, this is Mike Brown's approach, right? The best place to yes. look is on the planet of the ecliptic. That's where you're going to see them all. You're not going to look straight up above the solar system and see them or, or down below. You're going to see them somewhere in that in that zone. It helps you constrain your, your search. And every one of these objects crosses the ecliptic. So no matter what you're looking at, at some point, it's going to be in the disk of the solar system. Now, what about the comets and the asteroids? I mean, the asteroids have kind of weirder, some weirder orbits, and the comets can have really bizarre ones. So the asteroids have a bunch of varied orbits. And for the most part, they constrain themselves to being between Mars and Jupiter. But within all of these orbits, we see occasional collisions. We think we just saw the, the remnants of one recently out in the asteroid belt. And we also see asteroids that periodically decide they're going to come in and start crossing our own Earth's orbit periodically. These are more of the near-Earth objects. But for the most part, yes, they do have more elliptical orbits, but they're not ranging over the entire solar system the way comets do. Comets, in many cases, will start out in the Kuiper belt. So they're starting out at a distance, in many cases, greater than Neptune's orbit, and then plunging all the way in, in some cases to plunge straight into the sun, but often to come in and dance between the orbits of Mercury and the sun or Venus or Earth, just coming right into the inner part of the solar system and growing huge tails as they melt away in the heat. And when they're at their, their closest point, I guess they're moving very quickly and then they slow back down. And then, you know, that's why we'll only see, we'll see them accelerate as they approach the sun and then slow back down as they're heading back out into deep space. I mean, they can right. go on, they can go in orbits that last tens of thousands of years. Right. And many of them will have the ones that we're happy to keep observing over and over and over again, like Halley's Comet, will have orbits that are measured in tens of years, but the period of time that they're in the inner solar system and bright enough to be seen with the human eye is maybe only a single year. So on these tens of years of orbits, the amount of time that they spend visible in the inner solar system is a very small fraction. Right. And I guess the last thing to talk about is how the moons are, the movement of the moons are governed as well by gravity. Right. And, and again, we start seeing these interesting resonances, these interesting beat frequencies when we start looking out at systems that have multiple moons. There's people who believe that the reason that Venus has such a really long day is it's in resonance with the planet Earth so that we're pretty much always seeing when we're on closest approach the same part of Venus. Well, when we start getting out and looking at Jupiter's moons, we see different orbital resonances that keep its moons coming in so that they line up the same way every few orbits. We see this in particular with Io and Europa, which are both being tidally heated, leading to on Europa liquid water beneath its surface and on Io massive amounts of volcanism. Right, there's a there's a resonance between those two moons. So every time, or I guess Io goes around Jupiter, like what twice for every time Europa goes around once. There, there's actually a, a really neat one to two to four resonance between Jupiter's moons Ganymede, Europa, and Io, leading to 
Ganymede goes around once for every two times that Europa goes around for every four times that Io goes around. Uh, we also see a two to three resonance with Pluto and Neptune. Resonance like, resonances like this happen all over the solar system. And what's great is we can see the exact same mathematics applied to Jupiter and its moons that we see with the planets. And this was one of the things that really made it clear that Kepler's physics and Newton's physics was right, was we had Galileo looking at Jupiter's moons at the same time, relatively in the grand scheme of human history, that Kepler was coming up with his orbital uh, mathematic equations, Kepler's three laws. And scientists in the following decades were able to say, oh, this applies to Jupiter as well. So we can look out and we can apply the same mathematics to Jupiter. We can see it at Saturn. We can see it orbiting all of the planets. And we know that these gravitational tugs tend to lead to things ending up in resonant orbits. And of course, that story is going on at even larger scales with the movements of the galaxies and the interactions of the galaxies and the whole large-scale structure of the universe. But that's another story that we've already <laughs> told, I think. So, Yes. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. It's been my pleasure, Fraser. All right. Talk to you again. Bye-bye. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, with generous support from Universe Today. 